do we have a future? We ask that question in a variety of contexts. You ask that to your significant other. You ask that to your boss at work. You ask that to your doctor about your health. You ask that after watching the news every day. Do we have a future? <laughs> you know, this question becomes the most pressing when circumstances place us in darkness, shroud us with uncertainty. It's then when we wonder about the prospects of our future. Do we have a future? This is a question that Christians in the country of Iran could have asked 20 years ago. Uh, the Gospel Coalition author uh, Mark Howard describes what happened in Iran over the past 20 years. And in 1979, the Iranian Revolution uh, began, and with it came a hard-lined Islamic regime. That regime brought with it increasing persecutions of Christians in Iran. Uh, it kicked out missionaries, it, it banned Bibles, it outlawed evangelism, even killed several pastors. You see, the church in Iran was already small, and with new opposition, it seemed to be on the brink of extinction. So perhaps there is no more relevant question for the Christians in Iran at that time. Do we have a future? And the answer to that question seemed to be no. But that turned out to be a wrong answer. In 1979, there are said to be about 500 Christians in Iran. Today, there are said to be hundreds of thousands, perhaps even a million Christians in Iran. Making Iran, giving Iran one of the fastest growing evangelical churches in the world. As this author points out, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 13 centuries combined. God is drawing many people to himself through his son as Iranians are increasingly disillusioned with Islam and as Iranian Christians are steadily faithful to proclaim the gospel amidst persecution. Persecution hasn't gone away. If there was any time when God's people could have asked, do we have a future? It was at the outset of the time during the book of Exodus. They had spent 400 years in a place not their own. Largely, most of those 400 years was during slavery. Think of 400 years ago, of 1619. How much has changed in 400 years? How even the United States itself as a country was not even thought of 400 years ago. In the opening of the book of Exodus, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shows us where God is and what he's doing while his people are in darkness. He begins to pull back the curtain of God's purposes and show us how to live in faith in such times of uncertainty. And Moses doesn't take long to answer what would have been the most pressing question the Israelites had during that time. Do we have a future? And after we read Exodus 1-2, to the answer is clearly yes. So if you're not there yet, turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 1. You'll find it on page 45 if you're looking at a red Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Exodus chapter 1. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeves by, by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she found the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call the nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, servant, so the girl went and the, called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, 
Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left him? Call him and that he may eat the bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Well, before we jump into this particular passage of Exodus today, I want to give you a brief background of the book as a whole. Moses wrote this book. Now, that's a controversial claim in some circles. Some people see the different um, words used for the name of God throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and they conclude that that must mean different authors wrote the sections of uh, the Pentateuch. Well, I think that's just a lot of people have debunked that hypothesis because a variety of vocabulary doesn't mean a variety of authors. We use different words to refer to the same thing all the time. That's just an introduction to that. Uh, Moses wrote this book. That's what Jesus said, too. And Moses likely wrote this book while the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus. He would have had 40 years to write this book, nothing but time. Despite Moses being the author and despite Moses being a big player in the story of Exodus, make no mistake, God is the main character. God is the main character in Exodus. In Exodus, God is the one who saves a people for himself and displays his glory over all people and over all other so-called gods. If you wanted to see the main summary of what God is doing in Exodus, you could turn to chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. You just flip uh, one page, page 48. It's what God tells Moses to say, uh, to Israel, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If there's any good thesis statement for Exodus, you could argue it's those verses. But friends, we won't understand this book. We won't understand Exodus or really any book of the Bible unless we understand it in the context of the Bible as a whole. In other words, we won't understand Exodus unless we understand how it points to and is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 
So uh, Exodus does this constantly. It points to Jesus over and over again. And the book as a whole does this. Just as God formed a people and delivered them from Egypt's bondage, is really the first half of this book. And he did that to make them his own and to dwell with them, which is really the second half of Exodus. So in a greater way, God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has formed a people and delivered them from sin's bondage to make them his own and now dwells with us. So we said that God is the main character of Exodus. But you look at the first two chapters, and he's largely missing. The name of God is not there that much. You can't really say that he's at center stage. Throughout much of the time in the first two chapters, it's hard to see where God is at all. But we see him come most clearly by the end of the two chapters, the end of chapter 2. And once we see him at the end of chapter 2, we start to realize that God has been there the whole time. Friends, this opening part of Exodus is all about having faith while not seeing the big picture. And so I want that, what this opening part of Exodus is about, that's going to reflect this sermon as well. Having faith when you can't see the whole big picture. So I'm going to keep you in the dark as to what the main point of the passage is until the very end. Just like this passage teaches us how to have faith in God when we are kept in the dark. But I'll give you some clues. I'll give you a little bit of a flashlight to, to navigate your way. All right? So chapters 1 and 2 tell a similar story to the prophecy of Jesus, the Messiah, that's given in Isaiah 9, verse 2, where it says, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. So I think chapter 1 covers the first half of that, uh, that verse, people walking in darkness. And chapter 2 comes and covers the second half of that verse, people who have then seen a great light who are walking in darkness. So we'll narrate the story of chapters 1 and 2 from the perspective of its different characters, you know, the people of Israel, uh, Pharaoh and Egypt, and Moses himself. We'll draw some of its significance along the way, but our most pointed time of reflection will come at the very end of the passage, focusing in on the last three verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We'll consider what to do when we're kept in the dark. So, chapter 1, out of darkness. You look at its first paragraph, the first paragraph of Exodus. It comes with a focus on the people of God, Israel, now, we think of other stories that we might know. You know, most stories that we know nowadays come in the form of film, movies. Some movies build within it an expectation for a sequel. Right, you think of all the Marvel movies, like the 30 of them that have come out the past 11 years. And each one of them, you wait for the credits because there's some preview of the sequel that's to come. Some movies have an expectation for a sequel, and other movies don't but they have a sequel anyway. I'm thinking of most comedy sequels. You know, the comedy did really well. The actors haven't had a good career afterwards, so 10 years later, let's make a sequel. There's no expectation. The opening paragraph of Exodus reminds us that this is not a standalone book. This is not a contrived sequel. 
It's the natural next parts to a greater story. It immediately connects us back to Genesis. So the final part of Genesis tells us how the people of Israel ended up in the land of Egypt. So it all began with Jacob, also known as Israel. Jacob's sons sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Joseph wound up in Egypt, where despite initial success, he ends up in prison. But God gave Joseph the interpretation of the Pharaoh's dreams at this time. And these weren't just any willy-nilly dreams. These dreams were about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine that were coming upon that region, a region that would affect both Egypt and the land of Canaan, Israel. So it was through Joseph that God prepared a way and provided for food for Joseph's brothers. It's God's hand working in what seemed like a dark situation. And so after the brothers come to Egypt, they stay. And so you can really think of all of Genesis being the story uh, for the people who are in the wilderness of how they ended up in Egypt. So they stay in Egypt And Egypt is where God began to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. All the way back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And one part of that promise was to multiply offspring. So you see right in the first part of Exodus, Israel increases in number. God's fulfilling this promise. But, yeah, there's a but coming. There is a but in there. There is a pebble in Israel's shoe. It's probably more like a big rock. There's still this tension. They're in the place where God told them to be, where God wants them, and they're multiplying, but they don't have the land that was promised to them. In other words, they're not home. And the tension gets stronger. Not only are they not home, but they're not home for 400 years. Not only are they not home for 400 years, but they're in slavery for most of those years. Israel's situation at the outset of Exodus, it reminds us of a couple things. One of the things I think it reminds us of is that we can be in the exact place where God wants us to be and still be going through a hard time. In other words, friends, our circumstances usually aren't the best indicators of God's favor. God's word is. So for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, God says that we are his children, that we no longer have punishment for our sin, that he will remain with us. He may correct us, he may discipline us, but he does not stop loving us. We do not fall out of his favor if we are in Christ. So we continue to the next paragraph, verses 8 to 14. Verse 8, a new character enters the stage. Moses sort of pans the camera to focus on Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is not his first name. Uh, It's a special title to refer to the Egyptian king. And the nation, he rules Egypt. He, He focuses on them as well. So here we see a few things about Pharaoh in Egypt as a whole. The first thing is that this is a new kind of king. Did you notice that? Most commentators on Exodus agree that this Pharaoh was the first one after the line of Pharaohs known as the Hyksos uh, ended, were thrown out. You see, the Hyksos pharaohs were foreigners. They weren't native Egyptians. 
So foreign, a foreign government was ruling Egypt for a very long time. And now we have a full-blooded Egyptian who would probably be determined never to let that happen again. Never to let a foreign rule occupy their country. So now the Israelites were under a king like that. So another thing we learn about Pharaoh is, not, is that he saw the Israelites as a genuine threat. He saw them as a threat to overthrow, overthrow their rule, to be a foreign regime that takes over Egypt again. But you know this Pharaoh made some mistake. He doesn't know his history. How does it describe him in verse 8? This is a king who did not know Joseph. If this Pharaoh knew his history, he would have known that it was the Israelites' goal to get back to Canaan. He would have seen that that threat was not really there. They did not uh, propose a threat to them. So friends, just as a side note, here's a plug. Here is a plug to know history. Not just in a textbook but the history of different people, individuals, groups. If we know the stories of them, that will help us avoid sin. That will help us care for those people better. So here's what this looks like practically, boots on the ground. Instead of making snap judgments, we should get to know the story of those like refugees, Those like people who look different than you. Those like people who think differently than you. Those who you know, maybe those at church, who seem really quiet, who might seem a little bitter. If you get to know their stories, maybe that might explain some things. That'll create empathy. It'll keep us from taking snap judgments. But Pharaoh didn't do this. No, Pharaoh didn't slow down. Pharaoh didn't know his history. history. He deemed the Israelites as a threat. He was afraid of them. And why? Why was he so afraid of them? Well, you notice it was because of how many of them there were. It was because of their numbers. This made Pharaoh fear that they would be too mighty for them. You look at verse 9. It literally says he feared that they would be stronger than them. So what does he do? He places them in back-breaking slavery. You can see how it's described. He lays heavy burdens on them, verse 11. That word ruthlessly comes out in verse 13, verse 14. He exerts his dominance over them. He, he has the intention of killing off those who are weak. And friends, there's an irony here. There's an irony. The thing that was a sign of God's blessing of God fulfilling his promise, multiplying his people, is the very thing that caused them, that caused Pharaoh to put them into slavery. Boy, that seems like a dark time, not knowing what's going on. So friends, consider. Consider how many times the sin of Egypt has repeated itself throughout all of history. Egypt regarded itself as the greatest country and the greatest place on the earth. Which is why a surging minority made them feel threatened. It made them feel threatened to the point where they considered the Israelites subhuman. This is an easy thing to fall into. 
Well, let's close this first chapter, verses 15 to 22. There's another irony to what Pharaoh did, or at least tried to do to the Israelites. Despite putting them in slavery and hoping to abate their growing population, their population continued to surge. You look at verse 12. It had the exact opposite effect that Pharaoh hoped for. So in verses 15 to 22, Pharaoh ramps up his anti-Israelite policy, and we get to see the characters of Egypt and Israel together on the stage. Pharaoh enacts a policy of infanticide, first by telling the Hebrew midwives to kill male babies, then by telling all Egyptians to throw the Israelite male children into the Nile River. So on the stage, we see the Hebrew midwives alongside Pharaoh. Just as a little small significant, with the Hebrew midwives, they represent another example that while the people of God are not anarchists, the people of God will not obey government when government tells us to disobey God. God calls us to submit to governing authorities. But you look at the example of the Hebrew midwives. You look at the example of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, before the fiery furnace, when Nebuchadnezzar tells them, you've got to bow down to me. Those guys say, no, we will not listen to you. You think of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. They say, stop preaching Jesus. It's like, no, we can't do that. And so the Hebrew midwives here. Listen to God over man. So friends, chapter 1. These are dark times for the Israelites. It's as if they're in the ocean, trapped underneath a wave, not knowing which way is up, and more waves are coming. They're in a nation that's hell-bent to destroy them. And unless God shows up, they will be destroyed. This is the point where chapter 2 begins. Here we see a splash of light on a dark situation. A baby is born. Isn't it, it's impossible not to see the similarities between the start of Exodus and the start of books like Matthew and Luke. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, continues the pattern of Pharaoh's plans working against him. Throwing, in the, throwing babies in the River Nile would not only be convenient for the Egyptians, everybody lived by the Nile, it was the only fertile place in Egypt, And it's just a convenient, quick, and easy way to to do what they wanted to do. Not only was it convenient for them, but it had a deeper significance as well. You see, the Nile was so integral to Egypt's success that the Egyptians actually viewed the Nile as a god. So, the Nile was the main source of life And it was the giver of life, and so they also viewed it as the taker of life. So they could throw babies into the Nile, and then they said, this is the Nile's decision, whether to give life or to take life. They washed their hands of it. But yet again, Pharaoh's plans work against him. In the birth of Moses, we find that the Nile is not the judge. Rather, the Lord is the judge, and he is sovereign over the Nile. Despite Pharaoh's plan to kill Israelite babies, a member of his own household becomes responsible for saving one of those babies. This baby is Moses, a Hebrew who is adopted into Pharaoh's household and yet raised with a knowledge of his identity. 
More on that in a little bit. So verse 11, you look there, and it's sort of like a subtitle that's in between scenes of a movie, something that would say like 10 years later. But here it's really 40 years later. And these are days of darkness. What's up with this delay? God, let's get moving. Why why are you working like this? So friends, just as God's ways are not our ways, neither is God's timing nor pace, our timing or pace. He's not in a rush and he's not slow. So Moses grew up, it seems, with an apparent knowledge of the plight of his people. And perhaps the moment he describes here in verses 11 to 22 is one of the first moments when he got to see that plight firsthand. So here Moses witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And what he does next is premeditated. He looks to see if anyone is watching and then he kills the Egyptian. So here Moses desires to act as this champion, this deliverer of his people from the hand of the Egyptians. And how does he desire to do it? By using the tactics of the Egyptians. Save people from Egypt in the Egyptian way. And Moses gets off to a really bad start. And we talk about delaying Israel's deliverance from Egypt. If we're going to place blame on anyone, you know, a large part, it's got to be the blame's got to go on Moses, who acted this way. I mean, really, did Moses expect to go unnoticed while he was doing this? Did Moses expect to overthrow the whole regime of Egypt, one Egyptian at a time? Did Moses expect his own people to respond to those tactics? The Hebrews had seen so much killing, and now they're going to follow a killer? No, Moses will learn that God will save his people, and he will do so in his own way, not our way. Our efforts to save ourselves by our own actions never pan out. The whole Bible is clear on that. And if you think about it, Moses' life should have illustrated that to him at this point. Why was he saved when he was a baby? Was it because of his own ingenuity? It was because he was just so smart. He just controlled the way the Nile brought him to Pharaoh's household. Not at all. Moses was saved entirely out of God's grace, not his own efforts. Friends, the same works for us. If we're going to be saved from ourselves, delivered from what's owed to us for our rebellion against God, it will not be because our good efforts outweighed our bad ones. It It will be because God acted out of grace to save us. And that's exactly what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived in our place, died in our place, and rose again in victory. So we trust in him and him alone, not ourselves. So with his own people not responding to him, and with the Egyptians after him, Moses fled to Egypt, to Midian. What's there to know about this place, Midian? Well, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham. Not through his wife, Sarah, but through another one of his wives, Keturah. It's a conversation for another day. The Bible describes polygamy. It never condones it. 
Just because it describes something does not mean it's giving its stamp of approval. So the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through Keturah. They were scattered throughout the area between Israel and Egypt. And although Midian was a frequent enemy of Israel, Moses could have found a kindred spirit with these people. Like him, they're independent. Like him, they were isolated. So it's in Midian that Moses puts down roots. And you notice in verse 17, he gets another chance to intervene in a dispute. And this time, instead of enacting vengeance, he acts to rescue. So Moses' time in Midian turns out to be a good one for him. After saving these women, as it describes, he gets to marry one of them and have a son. Moses found a good place. It was just God's grace to him after what he did. But Moses still knows that this place was not home. You look for the explanation he gives for naming his son Gershom. What does he say in verse 22? He says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So where are we, friends, at this point in the story? Where are the Israelites at? It's still a time of darkness. But there are glimmers of light. God was raising up Moses. But, yeah, there is a but coming still. God was raising up Moses, but they didn't know he was doing that. Moses ended up spending 40 years in Egypt. By the time he fled Egypt, he was already 40 years old, as the New Testament indicates. So 80 years. This is enough time for a generation to grow up, only know slavery, and then die. So what do the Israelites do in this moment? Well, we've reached the final three verses of our passage. You've been kept in the dark about the main point, and it's fitting because the main point relates to what to do when you're kept in the dark. The main point is this. When kept in the dark, we remain faithful. Cry out to God and trust him, knowing that he's still working and that we've seen a great light. When kept in the dark, we remain faithful, cry out to God and trust him, knowing that he's still working and that we've seen a great light. We're going to spend our last few moments just breaking down that sentence. So when kept in the dark, we remain faithful. Friends, just because we might be in a dark period or a waiting period doesn't mean we're to be inactive. Waiting does not equal passivity. Waiting equals activity. This might be a silly example, but the thing I thought of, waiting is active, is the microwave. When I punch in whatever time I'm warming up my food in the microwave, I take this as a mission if I choose to accept, that I will get all the dishes ready, that I will put all the dishes away, that I'll get my drink ready, that I'll get my silverware ready, that I'll wipe down anything I can. I want to maximize my waiting time because I'm not just going to stand there looking at the microwave. (laughs) Waiting does not mean passivity. It is active faithfulness. And we get several examples of this uh, from Israel in these two chapters. You just walk through the story again. When you read back through these chapters, you find example after example of Israelites who were courageously faithful to God, 
even in times of darkness. And if you are particularly observant, you notice that most of these examples come from women. The Bible is a book that upholds the importance and value of women. And when you consider the cultural context, all of them, that the Bible was written, it upholds the value of women in a revolutionary way. One glowing example of this is the genealogy of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew includes three women, which was just unheard of in itself in a genealogy list. And not only does he include three women, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, but each of these women was a Gentile and an outcast in some way. So you look at Rahab, who was a prostitute, Ruth, who was a widow, Bathsheba, who committed adultery and then became a widow. So you may feel overlooked, unimportant, but that doesn't mean that God can't do far greater things than you imagine through your quiet, even unnoticed faithfulness. Something as simple as faithful church attendance. Something as simple as what my girl Diane Brock does very often is sit by different people in the church. Quiet, quiet, faithful, uh, faithfulness. Something as simple as sending a text, sending an email, sending a phone call, saying, I prayed for you. How can I pray for you? Quiet, simple, even unnoticed faithfulness. The Lord can do great things through that. So in Exodus 1 to 2, we get several examples of faithfulness in dark days. People who illustrate this principle. We don't just follow the Lord when things are going well. We follow the Lord even when things are going crummy. We saw the midwives who feared God more than Pharaoh, who lived out verses like Matthew 10, 28, when Jesus says, And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who lived out another verse like Psalm 118, 6. says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Faithfulness in dark times. If you paid attention, you even see Moses' sister, Miriam. Her faithfulness in her courage. She watched over her vulnerable brother. And when the Egyptians showed up and found her, ba- her baby brother, what did she do? Not only did she stay, but she actually spoke up. And it was through her speech that Moses was able to be raised in his own home with a knowledge of his heritage, with a knowledge of God. And so any, any kids in the room at, the, at this point, Miriam was probably 12 years old around that age when this happened. Don't think that it's not important for you to listen to God and do what he says. God can do far more than you think. Stay faithful. There's another example of faithfulness in Moses' parents particularly his mother. Doesn't come out in big, broad strokes, but in in little details. They followed God in doing whatever they could to protect their child. There's even more than that, though. It's clear that Moses was raised in such a way that by the time he was grown, he maintained his identity under God. 
His parents didn't compromise to the culture and values of the day, which would have been a really, really easy thing to do if you think about it. They've been steeped in Egyptian paganism and culture for 400 years. And to maintain their identity under God takes a conscious effort. Parents, the same effort's required today. The same effort. So we ask, how are you raising your kids so their identity is in Christ and not in the world? That, their, that your highest priority for them it's not that they excel in sports, not that they excel in school, not that they get into a good college, not that they have a good career. Those are fine things, but you can have all those things and not have Christ. Moses himself isn't without faithfulness in these chapters. We read earlier from Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Friends, we will obey God rather than reveling in the sin of the world, rather than despairing over the darkness of the world when we have a greater treasure and when we have a different home. You see, our home shapes our character and our conduct more than we think. Do you ever hear growing up, you're not going to do that in my house? <laughs> it should shape your behavior. We don't look to the home that is here, but to the home that God has promised. That keeps us here with open hands. That keeps us faithful while we're here. Faithful even in times of darkness. So when dark days, when God seems silent, we remain faithful. There's example after example of that in Exodus 1 to 2. But coinciding with that, we do something else. We cry out to and trust in God. You catch that word cry in verse 23? To cry is to be desperate. To cry to someone is to have some level of trust in them doesn't have to be tr perfect trust, but even the smallest hint of trust will get you to cry out to them when you are desperate. So here are the people of Israel crying to God, pleading for help, trying to trust him. And in times of darkness, they got praying. And in a way, the entire book of Exodus is God's answer to this prayer. If you know the book of Exodus, that is a grand way to show up. In God's good plan, he decided to bring about all the events of Exodus through the prayers of his people. Friends, if we want revival in our land, if we want big things, God-glorifying things, will we pray? This is how God can use our prayers. So we cry out and we pray. So why would we do this? Why, why would we trust in God? Give us a little bit of a foundation. We trust in him because God's knowledge is perfect. His plan is perfect. He is always at work. He doesn't sleep. Verses 24 to 25, it says this, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What does it mean for God to remember? 
I think that can be a little tricky. Does it mean that he forgot? Listen to what another verse says about God. Moses wrote this too. Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So we got to remember, the Bible is God's word to us. It's written on our level so that we can understand him. Jonathan Edwards called the Bible God's baby talk. (laughs) And it's stunning that even God's baby talk takes work to understand sometimes. So what does this mean that God remember? It's God being represented in a way that we can understand. J.A. Motyer, a commentator in Exodus, says this. Here God is represented as though he woke up one morning, the phone rang, and when he lifted the receiver, he heard the voice of his people in Egypt saying, we are in such a pickle. And the Lord said to himself, bye, George. I'd quite forgotten about them. Thanks for reminding me. The Lord's coming down on our level. So kind. Of course, God has known what's been going on the whole time. And if you pay attention, he's been at work this whole time. You can go back over the story. It's nothing but God's miraculous grace that the identity of the Israelites did not get sucked away and absorbed into Egypt after 400 years of being there. It was God who multiplied the Israelites when Pharaoh was trying to do the exact opposite. It was God who used the river that was supposed to give death. He used it to give life to a baby. It was God's design that the very baby who the household of Pharaoh saved, he would use to destroy the household of Pharaoh. It was God who redeemed and and bent Moses' evil for his own purposes by using his time in Midian to cut off all ties that Moses had with Egypt and to equip him to lead his people out of Egypt as he was literally a shepherd in Midian. This is the God who bends evil to bring about good. This is the one whose steadfast love endures forever. He is always at work. Do we have a future? There have been times when the sustainability of this church has seemed vulnerable. We may not confidently answer that question, do we have a future, with yes. I think of what Some of us are going through here, having a granddaughter move, watching your son writhe in pain, waiting for a kidney and facing another dialysis appointment, waking up to another day of shoulder pain, another day of an empty house, another day of an imperfect marriage. There are plenty of different seasons of darkness, but what Exodus 1-2 reminds us of is that God is still at work. He is completing the work he began in each one of his children. He is bringing us home, and he is working out all things together for good. How do we know that? 
How do we really know that? The Israelites cried out to God, but they didn't know he heard them. We cry out to God and we know we've heard them. We've heard, he's heard us. Because although we once walked in darkness, we have seen a great light. You could be like me and have blackout curtains in your room and be convinced that you are in darkness. But when the sun comes up and there's that little crack in the curtains, light will burst through. So here, friends, our dark situation was that we were without God and in our sin. Like Moses, we had failed to be faithful to God. The situation was that was one that unless God showed up, we'd be lost. But hope came in a baby. God the Son becoming human, surviving the edict of genocide from a wicked king. That this baby would grow and not be faithless like us or Moses, but be faithful to the Father in every way and always. Jesus entered our dark situation, bore what we did to cause it, bore the consequences we deserved for it, and overcame it. And now, morning has dawned, and those who were once in darkness have seen a great light. We know God is at work in this dark world because Jesus has overcome the world. We know our future. Our future is bright. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are trustworthy. Lord, we still see through a glass dimly, but God, we know that you are there. We stand and rest upon your promises, and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So God, amidst the uncertainty that we face, amidst trials, give us grace to hold on to you, to trust that you are at work, that you hear our prayers, and that Jesus has overcome the world. We pray this in his name. Amen.